Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. Today, I'm recording a conversation with Nick Majuli. He's the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He wrote an excellent book called Just Keep Buying, which is about the virtues of purchasing income-producing assets steadily over time to build wealth. Additionally, Nick writes a blog called Dollars and Data, where he takes on various misconceptions in the world of finance and takes them apart empirically with data. He's very much a believer in the efficient frontier and the index style of investing. As always, nothing on this podcast is investment advice, and thank you for subscribing. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you want to talk a little bit about your evolution as an investor, like where you got started in investing and how you got to your current approach? Yes, I've always been pretty good about it. I mean, in college, you know, I learned and like I took like a financial economics class, learned about diversification, efficient portfolio theory, all that stuff, you know, the Markowitz model. And it I was like, okay, once I start doing this, I'm going to start buying index funds, right? I'm going to keep the fees low, right? So I, I kind of knew all that stuff early on. I think it's not that my investment approach has changed all that much. There have been some tweaks and we can get into that. It's more of like my financial approach has changed, right? So when I first coming out of college at 23, I was like hyper-focused on like every single thing about my investments, right? I was like, oh, I got to make sure I minimize fees and I got to have this, you know, 5% of this, 10% of that, right? And so it was always super hyper-optimized. And I only later realized, like years later, you know, once I started writing and thinking about it more, that like that wasn't necessary, right? Like it's great that I did that. And that's great for me as like a writer and stuff. But like for my actual financial plan, like it would have been far better if I spent more time like on my career, my skills, things like that, which would have added a lot more actual value, like dollars to the bottom line early on. And not saying that, the, you know, optimization doesn't matter. At some point, it will matter. But when you're 23 years old, it doesn't matter. And I think the the simple example I give is like, I had $1,000 invested at the time, right? I just started my 401k, started putting money in. I was like, even if I got a 10% return, that's a hundred bucks. Like I was regularly going out with friends, you know, buying shots and dinner, Uber, all that stuff, right? I mean, Uber just started the time, but you get my point. Like I could easily spend a hundred dollars in a night. Like that would like no big deal. So I, I would blow my entire investment return in one night without even thinking about it. Yeah. And I'm sitting here, like have spreadsheets trying to project my net worth out for the next 10 years. And it's really silly, like when you think about it. So I think once you start to realize like which levers actually matter when, that's kind of how my approach changed. And we can get more into the investment side as well. I know you're probably interested in that, but that's just like a higher level. What's evolved the most is my financial approach. Yeah, I completely relate to that. So I started investing with a few thousand bucks as well. And I was completely obsessed with this small portfolio probably should have just been focusing on making more money and doing better at my job. So I totally relate. Went through the exact same experience. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so far investing. So it sounds like you were already on kind of the bogglehead, efficient frontier style of investing from the get-go and have never really wavered from that. Yeah, I've been reading, I think my favorite investment author, at least on the diversification side, is William Bernstein. So I read all of his books. The Intelligent Asset Allocator was a big one. And then he has like the four stages of investing stuff. He's got a lot of 
different, like the adult investing for adults is like a series of couple books. We're talking about correlation. He talks about volatility and a lot of stuff like portfolio construction. And so I was like, okay, maybe I need to add a bunch of this other stuff in there. So I had, I've had international stocks since the beginning, right? I've tried to have some tilts, either value or small cap at some point, right? And I usually have a tilt at just a small tilt. It's only maybe 10, 20% of my portfolio at any given point in time. I usually have a small tilt there. I've done some trend stuff, but that's usually since I've been at my firm, I've started to believe in trend a little bit. But once again, that's a small percentage of my portfolio. That's not like I don't put the bulk of my money in these things because they have all sorts of behavioral issues, like trying to follow them, right? Because they're wrong. You know, a a good trend model, like a 200-day moving average model will be wrong about 66% of the time. And so it makes money because it's it's right 33% of the time, right? So when it's right, like it gets out before 08 or it gets out before 2001, 2002, right? So a good trend model will get out at the right times. However, the problem is it'll get out at the wrong times too. And so because it's wrong two thirds of the time, there's going to be these t- moments throughout history and you can just back test this where it gets whipsawed and you're in and out, in and out when you know you don't need to be. And so that's the tough part about these following these types of models. So I do think they can add value over the long run, but I think it's hard to be 100% into something like that. So I varied a bit over time. I was in gold at some point, and then I started as I started analyzing the data more. I'm like, this thing's got a 20 year had a 20 year real drawdowns. I'm like, I can't do that. Like, I can't be in year 10 of a real drawdown and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep plowing money into this thing, right? And at least something that doesn't produce income, right? At least with a, a business or the U.S. stock market or something, I could at least convince myself, like, okay, yes, maybe stocks are beaten down because of valuation multiples been beaten down by people and people don't want to pay as much for earnings, right? That's at least fair. But like with gold, like there's nothing there besides what other people believe. And it's really tough to like just keep buying into something like that that has no income potential or no necessary growth, right? And there's a lot of Buffett arguments that have been made about, you know, the big shiny rock and all that. So yeah, so I, I've kind of went all over the place. I've dabbled in a little bit of everything. I've never done like managed future or anything or commodities like because i just looked at the data on that and i'm just like it's outside my you know my circle of confidence i don't touch that stuff but yeah i mostly do equities and income producing assets did you ever dabble in individual stock I know uh, now, yes did you ever in the past yeah, I've, there's a handful I've owned. I own this like one furniture company, like this like Chinese furniture company called Nova Lifestyles, and it's like a penny stock. And I actually never. On individual stocks, okay, before 2022, I had never lost money, like at least on on, on absolute terms. I've only lost like relative terms. Like I would have been better off just owning the S&P 500. I owned uh, Twilio at one point. I owned like this this furniture company. And I just, I bought them, like this was like 2017 and they went down and they went up a bunch and they, they jumped around a little bit. And I ended up selling like slightly above where I bought them. Like I didn't really lose money, I didn't make money, but if I just owned the S&P it would have been better. And then the only time I actually lost money, I bought two tech stocks in 2021, like 1% of my portfolio, very small mm-hmm. amount. And I eventually sold them like in late 2022, got to get my tax losses, et cetera. But like, yeah, outside of that, like I don't really dabble in that. And now I just won't own one ever again. Right. And it's funny because like I even knew before I bought those tech stocks, like I shouldn't do this. But like it was so crazy. Like I bought one of them and it went up like it doubled in like literally three months. And I was like, this is crazy. Maybe it's going to go up 10x. You know, it's just it's dumb stuff where you're like, okay, maybe it'll keep going. Like it's oh, it's only worth a billion dollars, like a billion dollars. That's nothing with all these companies worth hundreds of billions, trillion. There's trillion dollar companies like it's only a billion dollars. It'll easily get to 10 billion. Right? It's almost like this stupid logic you come up with in your head. (laughs) And I I never bet the farm on stuff like that. But it's just like a funny like you can easily like I could be this most rational person look at all this data. And then I come up with some stupid heuristic that like, oh, it's only a billion dollars. Like, it's almost like a joke. And and then, yeah, so it, it went up a bunch and then it crashed. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is stupid. It eventually sold out, just took my tax loss and moved on. But yeah, I'll never buy an individual stock 
maybe ever again. The only the only exception might be if like I have a friend's company and like I've in like not inside info that would be illegal, but like oh I believe in him and I've like mm -hmm. I've met them and I have like more information than a typical investor might have, like just from knowing somebody, not like inside info, but like that's the only exception. But I don't have any friends that are going to probably go public. Maybe I have like one or two that, that run private companies. I don't know if they'll ever go public. That's like the only exception I can think of is something like that. That's cool. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Like if you find a founder or something or some a product you can really relate to, I could see mm -hmm. investing in that. So you did write an article about investing in individual stocks. So I invest in individual stocks. Tell me why I shouldn't invest in individual stocks. I mean, most of your followers, people listening to this will already know what I call the performance argument, which is like, mm -hmm. oh, most people can't beat the index fund, you know, like over... You can look at the speed of reports over three to five years, you know, 75% of active managers, these are professionals who have like teams and research and money and all this stuff. They can't beat the market after fees. So it's like, if 75% of them can't do it, why the heck are you doing it, right? It's a very simple argument. Most of your followers have heard it. That's a fine argument. I don't think it's, I mean, it's fine. But then some people are like, well, I'm exceptional. I'm in the top 25%. And especially if you talk to people, if you talk to people that have been in the top, you know, 10%, top 1% their whole life, it's really tough. It, it's easy to convince yourself of this, right? And I, I'm just saying this from personal experience. I'm not trying to, there's no bragging here. It's just like, you know, I went to Stanford University. I've met a lot of these people. And it's like, if I've been in the top 1%, 1% or the top 10% of basically every distribution I can think of in terms of like intelligence and IQ and stuff. It's like, it's really hard to convince yourself that like, oh, I should just like pick the index fund. But you kind of have to do that because even those people underperform and intelligence isn't necessarily the only thing that's going to lead to outperformance, right? And so I think that's what's tough. And I think I understand the psychology of why people still want to do it. Like, oh, I think I can beat the market. And maybe you can. Some people just like doing it. If you enjoy doing it just because it's fun, you like digging into balance sheets, I'm fine with that. I usually say, okay, hey, take 5% of your money and go wild, you know? But the real argument that I like to put forth is what I call the existential argument. And it's like, how do you know if you're good at stock picking? Like with most things in life, like the feedback loop between your action and the outcome is really small. Like I think the best example I give is basketball, right? Like you shoot the ball and either goes in the basket or it doesn't, right? That's the outcome you want. You're not trying to shoot to miss. I mean, maybe there's... Once in a while, you might want to shoot to miss on purpose so your teammate gets a rebound. Like there are exceptions to that, but for the most part, you're shooting to make the basket, right? So if it's not going in, if you're shooting, it's not going in, you're getting feedback right away. Like, oh, I'm not doing this right. I can get better. Like all that sorts of information, you're getting feedback instantly. The issue with an investment is like you can make a decision now and you won't see that pay off for three years, right? And and it could pay off because you're lucky. It could pay off. It could not pay off even though you were right. Like there's so many weird things going on where like there's just so much luck involved. And so because of that, I find it really hard to like play a game where you can't link your skill with the outcome. And at least it's very tough to link and you need a lot of data before you actually have information. I think more importantly, one last thing I'll say on this, even if let's say you have skill, right? And so they've done all these studies and like there's this one paper called like, can all stars pick stocks or mutual fund? I wrote about it in the book. I can't remember the exact name of it, but the point is like this paper it talked about like, okay, can't are there actual mutual funds that can actually pick winners and stuff? And they found like, yes, 10% of people like or 10% of these mutual fund managers have alpha, like they, they can beat the market, they have alpha. So let's assume that's true. I'm going to agree with that. Like 10% of, of managers will beat the market. 
and they can identify their skill positively. Let's say 10% can't identify their skill, like, or they can identify that they don't have skill. They're the negative alpha, right? They're clearly bad at this, right? So if there's the, the bottom 10% is out, the top 10% is out, that means the middle 80%, four out of five people can't identify if they have alpha, right? Because there's no statistically significant performance edge, right? So just think about that. If 80% of people playing this game don't know if they're good at it, like how could you keep playing it, right? It, that's that's the problem for me. It's more of just like getting up every day, looking in the mirror and like, am I adding value? You don't really know, right? And so I think that's the issue for me. And that's more of a personal issue. Like I... That's why I'm like a programmer. I do operations. I do a lot of stuff that where I can, I know I'm adding value that the program just doesn't write itself by chance. It doesn't just happen to create this chart by chance. Right. So I think that's the big thing for me is thinking about the existential issues with stock picking. Yeah. And I, I relate to that. Like you definitely, I think with, with picking stocks, it needs to be something that you actually enjoy doing. It can't be just for, I want to make a lot of money because if that's the criteria, well, you're in for a long, hard road. <laughs> it, like if you like learning about companies and digging into them and managing a portfolio, like I would do it no matter what. So that's why I still engage in that pursuit. And yeah, one of the tough things about it is I think you need at least 20 year track record. Like you could be in a cycle where value is doing really well, and then you're going to have a rough decade where everything mean reverts. You can go for such long periods of time where the skill isn't clear. Like there were so many great value investors in the 2000s who are really just kind of benefiting from the value premium in that decade and now had a rough decade. And now basically their returns match the S&P 500. So that has to be an existential crisis. Like, did I ever add any value? Same thing for growth yeah. guys in the last decade. So, Yeah, I mean, that's... It if you're matching the S&P 500, like, I mean, assuming you're just doing this yourself and not charging fees, yeah. like this personal investing, then like, I think that's great. If you're just matching most of the time, and then you're beating it when like value has a run, I think that's obviously that's alpha over the long haul. So I wouldn't feel bad about that. I actually feel pretty good if I was doing that. Yeah. I agree, though. It's, it's one of those existential issues of like, okay, I was good. Am I still good now? Or has the regime changed? And now this doesn't work anymore? Have I lost my touch? Right? It's all those like types of issues that will eat at you, right? And they even found like Bard did a study or I think Bard Baird, they did a study where they found that every top performing money manager goes through a period of at least two to three years where they're underperforming. Like every single one of them, the greatest, like you can go through all of them and you'll find like a, a period of underperformance. Not a huge period, but a small period. The exception I think is like Simon's, you know, but even then Simon's out the gate with Medallion. It did pretty terribly in that first year. And then it just, once he took over, it just like, it took off, right? So there are exceptions to this, but not many. Almost every single big money manager has underperformed for at least a year, if not longer. Yeah, and that's pretty that's pretty impressive. Like when you think about those investors and you think about how great they are, the fact that they did go through those tough periods is, is pretty wild. Even Buffett, when he's had his regular periods where people are saying his Buffett lost his touch. And uh, if you lack the confidence, you could have a serious crisis of, of confidence where you're wondering if you ever had added any value. And yeah, it's the toughest game there is, in my opinion. Yes, I agree with that. So another thing I really related to that you wrote about was experience with amounts of money and how that relates to risk. So like I knew that when I had smaller amounts of money, I, I didn't care as much about risk and max drawdowns in my portfolio. And then as I got more money, I started to become much more cognizant of the risks I was taking. So that was a, that was another thing that you wrote that really resonated with me. Yeah, I think, and this is hard. You only learn this with experience. I think I think I can't. I can tell you, you know, hey, 
a 10% drawdown doesn't feel that bad, right? That's, this happens every year. But then if you have a $10 million portfolio, like losing a million dollars is like, you know, if you're especially not someone who came from money, like that is like hard to stomach, even if like that's normal in the market that the median entry year drawdown on the, like the S&P 500, I think it's like, I think it's 13%, maybe it might be 10, it's between 10 and 13%, which means even in a good year, a good year where the market is up, you should see like, you know, times where you're down 10% at some point, assuming you start on January 2nd or whatever, right? And go throughout the year. Like, it's one of those things where like, it's really tough to like, just type, oh yeah, it's only a 20% drawdown, no big deal. But once you convert that to dollars for some people, that's like a ton of money. And it's like, holy crap, like, it's so crazy. I think in March 2020 was when I really felt this more than ever. And like, I didn't change anything. I was like, okay, you know, this, I'm just like, this is how the market is. You have to deal with this. But like, there were days like in March 2020, where I lost more money in a day than I made like, in like, in my bonus, like I was working so hard, like I worked so hard for a year to get this like extra bonus and make like an extra, you know, couple grand. And I lost like multiples of that in a single day. And it's like, so weird to think about like one day, I'm going to lose more money in a single day than I made in a year. And it's like, not yet. It's not that I'm 33. I'm still young. But if, if this goes right, I keep saving no crazy accidents or something, no health issues or something. One day I'm going to lose more money in the market, at least on paper, than I made in an entire year. And that is the crazy part, but that is going to happen at some point, And I just don't know when it'll happen. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I've, I've gone through the same experience. It's, it's insane when you actually experience one of those drawdowns versus looking at it when you're young. Because when I was young, I had that attitude of like, oh, the market's going to drop 50% and you just have to deal with it. And then when I've actually experienced those events, I found that they're much different than they look like on spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing I tell myself is like, okay, I still own the same number of shares. Like my ownership of like the production of the whatever world production or US production, whatever you want to call it, like public production is the same. And so that's what I convinced myself. I'm like, yes, people aren't paying as much for that level of production, but I still own that same percentage, right? All else or roughly the same percentage, all else equal, right? So I think that's the thing to think about. And like, to convince yourself, like among other, there's other methods too. There's like thinking, about, okay, if it's down 50%, that means it's going to go, if it recovers, it's a hundred percent gain from here. So every dollar I put to work now in theory is going to have a hundred percent gain. Obviously how long it takes to recover is a separate question, but you can see like every dollar I put to work now is going to double at some point, assuming the market recovers, right? That's generally true for most markets. Most of the time there are exceptions. We can think about, you know, Japan, Greece, et cetera. But for most of them, I don't think that's an issue. Are there any, I know that you're very much a long-term bull and U.S. equities, looking at the data. Are there any things that make you take some pause where you think, well, if this happened, then perhaps the long-term trend that we've seen since the last hundred years won't, won't, won't persist? I think there'll be, there's going to be another period. I don't know when we could already be in the beginning of it. Decade, another lost decade, maybe lost 15 year period where even when you adjust for inflation, like over a 10 year period, the US or 10 or 15 year period, the US has not produced, US stocks have not kept pace with inflation or barely kept pace with inflation. Like some of the worst periods, they basically kept pace. So, I mean, what would have to happen? I have international stocks, right? And that's at least, I think it's half of my equity portfolio is international. Mm -hmm. So I'm not all the US. The one thing that would make me like change my tune, I would have to see over a 30-year time period, something like an 80-20, let's just say global stock, which includes US, a global stock slash US bond portfolio over a 30-year period, buying into it over time, so like a DCA type thing, has to underperform inflation. If that has happened, then I think we can start discussing like maybe this is not working anymore. Maybe equities aren't returning what we expected. Like I'm not saying like, oh, a 1% real return or 2%. No, zero. It has to be zero. Even if we get 2 or 3%, like I would still say, hey, 3% a year, what else are you going to do, right? There's not many other options out there, right? There, you know, that are like at least 
available and easy to access for most retail investors. So I need to see a 30-year period where I globally diversified. I say 80-20 because no one's 100% stock, I assume. You know, obviously some people are, but let's just assume most aren't. And if you actually look, that portfolio historically has returned about 4% a year, right? Real, right. which is decent, 4 to 5%. Depends which period and stuff, but 4 to 5% a year. That's what I assume is going to happen going forward. Of course, that's on average. There's going to be periods where it does really well. And there's going to be periods where it does poorly. But on average, that's the premium I expect us to get going forward. And you're saying, well, Nick, but U.S. stocks have returned 7% a year. I get that. And I think that's exceptional. And I don't expect that to keep happening forever. I don't expect 7% real returns forever in the U.S. stock market. And I think maybe we just had a great run. And there's, I don't, I can't tell you why I think it's not going to continue because I don't know. I just think like there's something about like the average levels, four to five percent across most equity markets most of the time. The fact that we've had seven is this great thing. But I just think if we should just be like, well, the typical return is four to five percent. So let's expect that. And if we get more, great. If we don't, then you see what I'm getting at. Like it's better yeah. to expect like the mean return or like the base rate than it is to assume, oh, you know, I see it every day I see it on Twitter. You know, if you just save X dollars a month for 15, 20 years, you'll be a millionaire. It's like, yes, that's assuming an 8% annual return, which could happen because that has happened historically. But if you do real, like, I just don't know. And I don't want to tell people to use those rates when like the historical average across the globe is about four to 5%. And that's like the equity risk premium that across most developed markets. So that's the thing I want to kind of keep in mind. And so if that breaks, if that, if we see a, like a 30 year period where most equity markets have not returned, you know, above inflation, then I think we can consider like investing is like kind of dead and like the just keep buying approach hasn't worked in the same way. So, and it can't just be pure, it can't just be like a snapshot. Like you need really, like if someone was buying over time, that's where it's showing like this thing is just basically going down. That's what, that's uh, the only way it can happen, you know? So. Do you ever think that demographics could affect things? So it looks like, for instance, in the Japanese and the European markets, it looks like demographics have really weighed on their returns. Do you ever worry about something similar like that happening in the U.S.? I didn't used to. The only way I think that could happen in the U.S. is if we keep these our immigration policies as strict as they are. I mean, and they, they didn't used to be as, I mean, they've always been relatively strict, but I think the Trump era got a little bit more strict. And and this is not me. There's no political thing here. It's like it literally did after COVID, it just became more difficult to get into the US. And I think that's our that was our edge. Like we're literally brain draining the world. And I think that's a huge, huge value. And because people are voting with their feet and they're coming here, you know, we're making the door smaller and smaller. And I think there are some real costs to that. And I think like a lot of immigrants add a ton of value to our society. I mean, this is literally like all of us are basically immigrants. I mean, unless you're Native American, you know, you did you did you came here in some way as an immigrant, right? So I think that's the thing to keep in mind is like we need to probably change our immigration policies back to at least the, I mean, less restrictive than they are now, because I think that brain drain is a huge value edge that we have over the rest of the world and we're going to continue to have. And so I think we have it, but it's tough. You don't make the door smaller. That's my argument. Don't make the door smaller, right? You know, I'm not saying you have to make, let every single person in, in, you know, I'm not saying that, but like, let's, we're going in the wrong direction, I think in the trend, right? And so if I, if I had to pick like what we should do to solve that demographic issue, I'd be like, let's add more immigration because I agree. I think we're going to be like Europe and just have our population decline as a result. Yeah. And that would definitely weigh on the equity market and the overall mm -hmm. performance of the country. So your book, Just Keep Buying. So I'm in agreement with your thesis that you want to basically over your lifetime, constantly keep buying income producing assets. Like I'm hundred percent in agreement with that. So why do you think that message triggers people? So I imagine you get a lot of comments on Twitter that are like, oh, well, you'll see that everything's going to fall apart next year. This is why this is a terrible idea. Why do you think it gets so much, it triggers so many, so many people? I think it's a couple of reasons why it triggers people. One, 
I think it does. It sounds very naive. And it, to be honest with you, it kind of is naive. And that's the that's kind of the brilliance of it. It's like, no, really, it is this simple. Like, this is the approach that like historically would have done well for like a typical retail investor who I'm writing for. I'm not writing for the hedge fund person. I'm not writing for someone who's like Jim Simons. I'm not writing for those people. So I think because all the intellectuals, like all the quant people out there look at this and they look down upon it, like, oh, he's just that stupid, just keep buying guy. But like, I've, I've analyzed the data. I'm saying like mm-hmm. the typical retail investor in the United States would do better by following my approach than by trying to do trend or manage futures or commodities and all this other stuff out there that's a distraction and that's the whole point of my book and that's the whole point of my message is like i've analyzed the data and like for the typical person this is the approach right and so it's going to get looked down upon by quant people by factor people all this stuff because like no you can earn more edge by doing it's like but most people can't do that and they're not you know you're saying oh they can just buy a fund but they there's the behavioral piece that that they don't maybe understand fully in the way that a true quant investor would understand like they're they may not understand like holy crap, value can underperform for 20 years and I have to hold on to this thing. That's really tough for the average person to really like deal with. Like I can't deal with it. I couldn't sit there in a fund for 20 years, just be like, oh, I'm underperforming forever. I'd probably leave eventually, right? And so I think that's the thing that's tough for people. And I've personally experienced this. I did this with gold, even though gold maybe over the long term helps a portfolio, even though as an individual position, it's really rough to hold. So that's the thing where I think is missing. And so I think it triggers people also because like, I'm not from, I'm not in the financial world really. I am now, like I've been, you know, at a wealth management firm for about five years now, but literally before April, 2018, like, yeah, before April, 2018, I never worked in finance. I was working in like litigation. I was doing consulting work. Right. And then all of a sudden, like this guy starts writing about this stuff and I'm 33 years old saying all this stuff. It's like a, it's, of course it's triggering. Like you have a non-financial person coming in and just like overthrowing what a lot of these people are saying. And it's not that, it's not like, completely novel like Vogel has said it there's a lot of people have said it before but I'm like look I have data that is like now shown this and demonstrated definitively even all these market timing approaches by the dip you know all this type of stuff it doesn't work and I've demonstrated that so I think that's also why it's triggering to people like it's just like an attack on like yeah you guys are spending all this time trying to generate alpha and do all the stuff and for the most part it doesn't work there are some people that can do it but I think it's you know you'd be better off doing something else with your time and that's it's triggering. It is triggering. Like say like, yeah, your whole lifestyle, you've wasted your, you've wasted your most of your career doing this stuff. Like imagine that, imagine someone coming up to you and saying, yeah, you go out every day and buy stocks and do all this. And that's an absolute waste of time. Like that's, right. it's triggering. I would, I could understand why people would be upset by that and why I get attacked and, oh, I'm just an idiot and naive and this and that. It's like, I understand like the approach does sound naive, but like the data supports it. Like that is, it's, it's that easy. Like it really is. And that's kind of the hard part. Yeah. And even for the sophisticated people, like I think it's the time. So like when you look at hedge funds and trend and doing all kinds of weird stuff with options, when you look at the actual results of these funds, I mean, there are lots of people who can demonstrate that it works in a back test, but I don't think there's many people who can actually, actually deliver those results. I mean, yeah, it's tough. And like, even like, it's so funny because I'll show like S&P 500 versus hedge fund returns. And like S&P 500 after fees is beating like the typical hedge fund, right? Most years. Mm-hmm. And then it's like over, especially over longer periods of time. And so I'm like, well, when the market goes down, hedge funds outperform. And then there's like tons of like, there's a chart I saw where like, even during the down market, the hedge funds underperform. So it's like, 
like where is your argument anymore right when you're i think the issue is the fees are so high they can't it's tough it and they're like well that's not the function of hedge funds people will come back they keep changing the argument if it's not performance they're going to change the argument if it's not that they're going to change the argument right it's like when after buffett and munger were beating the market for so many years they're like okay we're at the the third standard deviation of performance and then they you know and it's like oh that wasn't good enough that was just luck and then the fourth standard and then fifth and sixth standard deviation it's like you can't keep changing the argument like these guys have alpha like you have to admit that like i admit people have alpha i'm not saying there's no one that can generate alpha that is that is false completely i just think the typical person listening to this podcast the typical person out there on twitter doing their thing living their normal life they cannot generate alpha that is the thing it is very very difficult and attempting it is is not a good idea that's my argument yeah i agree and one of the most compelling things was the Buffett bet. When you looked at, when I actually pulled up that table from the Buffett bet of all the different fund of funds that he had, most of them not only underperformed the market, but you could have bought a 10-year treasury bond better than investing in those funds. And that kind of, that really blew me away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, treasuries did very well, you know? I mean, now it's like, it's, it's very different in 2022, but yeah. you get the point. You're like, yeah. And so I think it's just tough. I think it's just tough for people to accept that and- I mean, it's a lot, there's a whole industry where people have made a lot of money doing this. So there's, it's very attractive, like for VC, PE, hedge funds, all this stuff, quant investors. Those are all very different things. I'm not saying those are all the same, but they're all, what they're all doing, they're all trying to chase alpha in one way or another. And I think here's my, I'm going to say this now. I've always said that like the typical, like the S&P 500 will outperform private markets over like a 10 year period, net of fees, you have to net the fees. I think especially with everything that's happened at, at SVB and everything that's going to have all the fallout in the private markets, I think you're going to see that. Like once the data comes out, my argument is that over, let's say the last you know five years, I think the public markets will have outperformed private market investors, like the, the median investor, at least, right? The top funds will still outperform by a ton of, by a huge amount, but I think the median investor will underperform there. I think that's the rich are being seduced by all this and they're paying high fees to do it too, which is like the crazy part. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think a lot of the wealthy and family offices and institutions, they're going into spaces like private equity and venture capital. And I'm not, I don't think the returns are anything like what they used to be. Like you're, this is not David Swenson in 1987 as the only, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. Like I think it's a different world right now. And I doubt it's going to have the kind of, return that it historically had. Yeah. I mean, when there's not a lot of money in there and then money flies in, like you can make a big return. But now that there's so much money in private markets, it's almost like public markets in that sense, even though they're not necessarily public. I think the other thing too is like, some of these funds will just straight up like, you know, lie about their returns in some aspects, right? If, I don't know if you guys, if you've been following the Blackstone REIT, whatever it's called, REIT, it's like, Every public REIT out there was like down big in 2022 and their fund barely like because, you know, they, they get a mark to market their portfolio. So they're like, oh, we're down just a little. And then this year I saw a tweet from Jake Economic in that tweet. He's like, OK, in the first in January, like all the public funds went up, but REIT was down a little bit. It's like, how is that possible? Oh, because now they're starting to mark to market. They're like they're now starting to unwind and say, oh, yes, we're recognizing losses. Right. So it's one of those things where like even the data I don't necessarily trust as much in these areas because people will like, oh yeah, it's worth this much. It's like, well, until you sell it, it, you don't know how much it's worth until you actually try to sell it. And so I think the losses we see in public and private markets should be very similar. I, I don't see why not. Like there's nothing necessarily about a public company that is all that different from a private company. I mean, there are some key differences in terms of reporting and stuff like that, but like I 
you know, you're trying to basically say small cap premium is massive, right? And I don't think it's as big as people think it is. And so because that premium has been getting smaller, some says it has, some argue it hasn't existed since the, since it was publicized in the early eighties. So because of that, like, why would we see it in private markets? It's the same sort of argument just being drawn down even further. Yeah. Do you think institutions should move towards more of a passive approach? Like there's the pension manager in Nevada who basically runs a passive portfolio of index funds. Do you think more institutions should go in that direction? I mean, if they want to save money, yes. I mean, fees alone, it's just like, the. I mean, just fee, how do you pay, you know, let's say two and 20 was the old model. I don't think everyone's paying two and 20. I think it's like 1.5 and 15 or 1.5 and 10 or something. Now, I don't know. I'm not following it exactly, but like, how do you pay 1.5% a year and you have to have this investment generate that on top of like whatever the general growth of the economy is, which is like being added to the, let's say the S&P 500 in some way. It's just the fee is where you're losing your money, right? If I had to be honest, like I think without fees, like private markets can definitely outperform. Once you add in fees, it's really tough. And I think that's where people are losing money. So I also think it's just like, oh, we're a pension fund. We do think we don't do that. Like, oh, we're not some commoner buying some, you know, broad based <laughs> index fund, right? Yeah. That's how I'm telling you, there is like a status thing that where people look down on you for buying index funds. And I think that's what VCs do. Like, oh, we're VCs. We're so smart. We do all this. And then as soon as their as soon as their portfolios blow up, now they need the you know, now they need everyone to save them. Right. And so it's like, it's so interesting to me to see the group thing play out. And of course, I'm not saying this would never happen to me. If if somehow like there was some index fund fraud at like some of these big index fund providers and my money was at stake because like there was some huge fraudulent thing or something like that, I would be first in line to be like, yo, help us out. Like this isn't right. But like we understand like that there's some risk there, but like, you know, there should be protections for stuff like that. So I'm not saying like, I wouldn't be the same as them if I was a VC, but it's just funny because like every person has certain beliefs about the world. And as soon as, sorry to curse a little bit, as soon as shit hits the fan, so to speak, like that's when all those beliefs go out the window and it's like, save me. I need this now. Right. And so, and I'm just saying most people are like that. I will throw myself in that bucket too, but it's just, it's funny. That's all I want to say. Well, yeah, weren't a lot of them prominent libertarians, like government should just stay out of everything. And then yeah, yeah. During COVID, they were kind of like, well, a company should have been better prepared for this once in a century event. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's really tough because you see you see stuff like that. And like, there are some arguments to be made there. Like someone be like, well, Bill Gates had two years of cash at Microsoft, like at all times. So like, you know, early on, he knew about this and he knew risk management. You guys didn't, right? And so you can make those arguments, but it's really tough. How does a restaurant do that? Restaurant margin is so small. Imagine having two years of cash on hand to run your restaurant. Like you just can't, you'd basically yeah. be subsidizing it, like losing money. So it depends the industry, it depends the business. It's a lot of those aren't practical as a business owner to do that. It's otherwise you have so much money locked up in cash or losing just when cash isn't earning anything. Maybe now you could have two years worth of cash because- Cash earns a yield, but when cash is earning zero, it's it's almost irresponsible to be holding two years worth of cash. So I don't know. I see those points, you know, and it's just like, it's tough. And this is obviously a different thing. I do think like all of the, you know, depositors should be made whole. Like I just believe, I would say that regardless of who the person is, it has nothing to do with Silicon Valley. I have no preference for or against them. I just think like, you know, people do this and, you know, they expect certain things and, you know, the counter's like, well, we knew the limit was 250. Every dollar above that, you should know you could lose. Like, I get that. But if we just say that's true, we're going to see all this money fly out of banks. Confidence is going to be gone. It's going to really just aggregate into the biggest banks in the in the country, which is Chase and a handful of others, right? So I don't know if that's the right solution to be like, well, you knew the you knew the consequences. Well, technically they did. But at some point we have to like, it would just be infeasible to have, you know, 30 bank accounts or 40 bank accounts for a business with a ton of cash, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you ever think about 
the Schiller PE, do you think there's any merit to it at all? I know you've written a lot about how it's not really useful, but do you think there's any merit to those those macro evaluation metrics at all? I mean, as a metric, it, it is measuring something, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm. it's obviously useful in that regard. The question is, I guess what you're trying to ask, if I'm, let me see, tell me if I'm correct, is like, you're asking, is it useful as a measure of future, predicting the future returns, right? That's a better way to phrase the question. Yeah. And so <laughs> in that case, yeah, I just want to make sure I understand like yeah. what I mean. Like, I don't like, oh yeah, the measure's stupid. He's not doing it right. Like, no, that's not, yeah. that, I don't agree with that. But I think like as a measure of future returns, like it depends the time scale. To, like, I would say it's like, weakly accurate i wouldn't say it's super strong at least in the in the interim like over longer periods of time it's somewhat accurate the issue is just like like for example let's say the pe is 27 or 28 right now right mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that like okay 10 years from now it's not going to be 28 like earning if earnings keep growing and the pe stays the same like you you can get growth in the stock market right that like that it's like earnings growth it's the change in the valuation multiple right those are the two biggest things right and so Obviously, if people are not bidding up or down prices, if those stay the same, if the PE stays the same, then everything can come from earnings growth. And so, for example, earlier this year, Howard Marks put out this thing that said, like, all of the growth in the stock market was due to declining interest rates from like 1980 to 2020, basically. That 40-year period was all due to declining interest rates. I countered it and said, you're right, but only half right. And what I mean by that is like, from 1980 to the mid-1990s, that was all interest rates. And you actually look, valuation multiples shot up. But from the mid-1990s to now, that's all earnings growth. And you can see because the PE in 1997 is basically equivalent to what it is today. That hasn't changed. So obviously, if the market has grown since 1997, what's the only difference? Earnings growth, right? And so this, I mean, this is roughly equivalent. With, you know, it changes every day. But like from then till now, most of that has been earnings growth. So to say that all of the growth in the stock market has been from declining interest rates, I think is high kind of disingenuous, not like, I don't think he's lying or he's wrong necessarily, but it's, it's not complete. And so, you know, I, I respect Mark's a lot. I think he's an incredible thinker, but I think it's only half right. I think it's true from 1980 to 1995, all of that, all of that was interest rates declining, right? But since then, we've had massive earnings growth. And you can just look at the numbers like, wow, yeah, earnings have grown a lot. So like the PE was like slightly elevated in the you know mid to late 90s and like 97 was slightly elevated. And today it's slightly elevated. But guess what? Earnings grew over that period. And so that's why the stock market went up. So if earnings continue to grow into the future, we will see more stock growth. If they don't, then the only thing that can make stocks go up is people bidding them up. So I think now we are in a tougher spot because earnings have to keep growing. And so they have been growing for the last, you know, 20 something years. The question is, will they keep growing at, at a similar pace? I don't know, but that's kind of the argument. So it would be like saying in 1997, like, oh, markets can't grow anymore from here. And they did for a few years, they crashed, and then they went up again, then crashed again, but then they did grow after that, right? So like on net, it, you're looking at like, you know, you really just, the question is, will earnings grow in the future? If so, then will stock investors will be rewarded? If not, then they won't be, right? So Yeah, and that's a constant argument I, you, you, I've been hearing for years. It's just oh, this is all just a low interest rate phenomenon. It's all coming, it's all doing well because interest rates are coming down. And uh, yeah, I like that article. Mathematically, it just doesn't make any sense. It sounds really good. And it sounds like, it's usually used to back up an argument that the Fed has inflated an insane bubble for the last 50 years. And you'll see, it'll all come crashing down someday. 
Yeah, I mean, there is the argument that like, okay, lowering interest rates or declining interest rates leads to earnings growth, right? And that's, mm -hmm. it's a little bit more, there is some data there, but I don't know how strong that is, right? It's not, because there are periods where interest rates were going up and earnings were growing, right? So it that's not always true, right? And so I think you have to be like, oh, every time it's just a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Like, no, it isn't. It's a little more noisy yeah. than that. And so that's the that's the truth. There are periods where you know, rates went up and, you know, markets went up. So like we can find evidence of that. So it's not always a one-to-one. -one. Right. So I understand that counter. I'm not saying it's not a decent counter. I just don't think it's a perfect counter. And so I think like, you know, every, there's this, oh, there's this massive bubble and stuff. It's like, well, you're telling me there's this massive bubble and everyone is just, every market investor out there is just sitting there like, oh my gosh, we're such idiots. We've been sitting in this bubble forever. Even after prices have already come down, people are like starting to feel the pain. You think like, oh, there's another 50, 60% drop ahead of us or something. Like how big is the drop, you know? And so like people have been calling for this for years. And if this does materialize one day, they'll be like, oh, we were always right and all this. But like, we don't know. It's like the, everyone was like, oh yes, yeah, fine. When COVID finally happened, all the bears like take a victory lap. And I'm like, how are you taking a victory lap? You did not see this coming. This was not the thing. And they'll say, well, it was some catalyst that would cause it. And it's like, this is not it. It's not the thing. And even actually the market ended up after end of 2020. So it's like, yeah. but that is say the Fed. And then there's always an excuse. As I said, if you keep changing the excuse, like maybe just maybe you're wrong. Like that's my counter. Like maybe you're wrong, you know? And so just to consider that it's hard to be a bear for, you know, 12, 13 years and be like, I'm still right. Like, you know, the market's gone up how much since 2010? I don't even know the answer, but it's like, it's over doubled. It's huge. Right. So yeah, and I, I remember reading a lot of these guys. I thought they were geniuses back in 08, and I kept following them, and they always scared me. Like, it, from 2011 through 2014, I still read them, and I'm like, oh, well, the big one's coming still. These guys are still saying it. And no, it turned out they were just kind of stop clocks. I mean, in order for them to be right, the market would have to fall something like 80 90%. I, I don't see that happening. Yeah, I mean, without some other thing happening that causes that right like a nuclear war so like yeah if something like that happens like that's a separate issue and that's like not <laughs> that's outside of the model of like what i predict and what i hope for and what i just hope for for the world this has nothing to do with my stock portfolio like yeah that's the other thing we haven't talked about is like we're talking about all these things as if like the stock portfolio is the most important thing in the world if something happens that is causing a 80 percent drop in the stock market like I'm telling you, your stock portfolio is not is going to be the least of your worries, right? You're, oh, my dividend income. Like, no, you're going to have to like have serious problems. Like what happened when COVID was like crazy? We we're going to be stuck inside like for forever. That's at least what we thought initially. It's like life as we know it was going to shut down that we wouldn't be able to go outside anymore. Like those were the thoughts that were going through people's heads. And that is a fundamental change in how people live. And that is like a, that's huge. Of course, I'm surprised it didn't drop more. I'm actually shocked that during COVID, the market didn't drop more. It only dropped 33% from top to, from peak to trough. Like literally like people stopped going outside. No one was doing stuff anymore. And it only dropped 33%. Like that's just shocking to me in some way. So yeah, I would have thought, I thought it was going to fall at least 50, 60% back then. And uh, I was shocked by the fact that it was only 30%. It's what finally really rid me. Like I used to kind of, I was in the camp of macros unpredictable, but maybe I could do it a little bit. <laughs> and that was COVID was what finally rid me of that belief. There is just no way to predict any of this. This is impossible. <laughs> yeah. So people always ask me, like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, I'm like, imagine asking this to someone in Q4 2019. People had all these visions of what was going to happen, all this stuff. And it's just like none of it was right. And not because that they were stupid or they just 
there's only so much you could be the smartest person in the world and you can't predict that type of stuff like the black swan like the longer i've been thinking about this stuff the more i'm going to be like taleb was right like there's some piece of me that's like taleb is like i think i think you can't invest like you believe everything taleb says because if you did then you'd be like tail risk and all this crazy like be preparing for the end of the world all the time but like at some point, like he is going to be right. At some point, there's going to be an event that is going to drop markets 90%. I don't know what it is. It could happen, you know, hundreds of years from now. I don't know, but there's going to be something, some war, some outbreak, maybe a, a alien species. It's all crazy. Like, I know these all sound crazy, but at some point, there's going to be some tail event that could be civilization ending. And I hope it never happens and maybe it never will, but there is a chance that it will happen. And it's like in the very, very long run of history, Taleb is right. But I think in the short to medium term or like in a human lifetime, you can't invest like that. I think it's just too difficult to just prepare for the next COVID when COVID may not happen for another hundred years, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So you've written, so your blog has really taken on a lot of, you know, kind of widespread financial misconceptions. So what would you say among all the things that you've tackled is the thing that is most wrong? If I had to pick one, I would say people focusing more on investments instead of income. I think income is like, like how do people get rich? It's income. It's like, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, Nick, isn't that obvious? Well, not necessarily because some people will say like, well, it's not just income. It's like how much you save and all that. And don't get me wrong. There are people that have high incomes and spend it all. Like that, that those people definitely exist. You probably know some in your life. You've seen some on TV, whatever. Mm-hmm. You can talk about celebrities, but like you can name, let's say 10 celebrities that have went bankrupt, right? From their overspending, right? But guess how many I can name? Every other celebrity, like you have 10, I have, you know, N minus 10 and where N is all the other celebrities, right? So that's the point is like people focus on these outliers and these little specific moments. They focus on, oh, now do Japan, right? The Japanese equity market hasn't done well. How, how does just keep buying work there, right? People focus on those outliers as a way to disprove an argument when like the base rate, as I said, the most common outcome is like people with high incomes are the people building wealth, the people saving more, the people, it's just so much easier to save when your income's higher. And it's like, that seems very obvious, but no, like, why is the latte thing like, oh, your lattes are making you poor? Like, no, like, it's not making you poor. It's like, yes, well, $5 a day, you know, compounded at 14% a year, grow into a lot of money. Yes, but A, no one's compounding at 14% a year and B, like, it's just kind of silly. I think the real thing is like income. People need to focus on income. And that's that's where I was wrong early on because I was focusing so much on the investment side when really it's like you have to focus on building income over the long haul. And so if I could go back and like just re- change my mindset, it would be more about like income and more about focusing on income and telling people like, what can you do to raise your income over the long haul? And of course, that's not easy. That's not like, oh, let's just, oh, so it's so simple, Nick. I'll just go earn more income. Like, no, it's not that easy. But it's like, you have to set up a plan and start working toward that, right? Like I think about like what I did with the blog, like for three years, I, did, I didn't make any money, you know, and I was doing, and I could have, I could have turned on ads earlier, could have done stuff, but now I have ads. And so now it is starting to generate income, but it's like, well, it's saying it just takes years to do. And like, I'm just trying to do this is like, how would a typical person do this? Maybe you're not a blogger, maybe you do photography, maybe you do tutoring, maybe there's so many things out there, right? There's so many options out there, especially with the online world that like find something, start planning towards it. And you may not make money initially, but like you have to take your time and you have to start trading it so that you can start building something that will eventually make you money. And I think if you're not in a place where you like financially, you need to find out a way to build more income. I think that's like the most sustainable and path that's correct. Or I think the biggest line of personal finance is cutting your spending as a way to build wealth. And you, you can do it in the short run. I just don't think it's a long-term solution that's viable for most people. Yeah, I think income is more important. And I think cutting spending is very important. Like, I think there's two kinds of people in this world. You know, there's the spenders and there's the savers. And 
me, I'm like naturally wired as a, as a spender. So for me, it's like, I really need to stay, you know, stay very disciplined with my spending. And I'm always second guessing that, like I'm mm-hmm. trying to rein that in because I've seen it get out of control before in my past. So, um, yeah, I think it comes down to how you're wired, but yeah, at the, at the end of the day, making money is probably the most important thing. Like if you're making $20,000 a year or something, I mean, there's no spending you can cut to, you need to focus on your long-term income potential. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing I would say. It's very individually based, as you said. Like, I'm just, as I said, I'm reporting the base rate, the most common result for most people. Like, there are going to be people like, oh, no, I have to focus on spending because without that, it won't work. So I'm not saying like every single person that cuts spending is invalidated. I'm just saying most people, that's the issue. If I just give the general, like, I don't know you, if I have to pick what I think the issue is, it's income. It's not like, oh, my God, I'm spending too much. It's like, oh, I just am not earning enough money. Like, so I think poverty is like, oh, why are these people poor? It's like, it's because they're spending hats. Because it's like, no, they just don't make enough money. Like, it's that simple. Like, people are wondering, why do you think all this, you know, credit card debt and all that stuff went down so much during COVID? Because people literally were just handed money. They were just given more money. And like, all of a sudden, like, all these things in their life are improving because they had more money to like spend, right? So, and like, and, and have a little bit of a cushion and not have to worry like that. I mean, there's huge things to that, right? There's huge distributional benefits of something like that. But that's a separate thing. So anything. So this is a good discussion. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, nothing else. I mean, if you have any questions, anyone has individual questions, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at uh, dollars and data. I answer, try to answer every DM. So if anyone has a question or clarification on something, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Nick. Appreciate that. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.